Good morning, Highland Gospel. Good to have you guys here. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Stephen. I'm on staff here with Nate and Chelsea. And uh, every once in a while, they let me get up here and speak, which I actually really, really, really enjoy um, quite often. Um, but uh, so we're in Mark, and I love this book. Uh, probably not, not as familiar of a book amongst most people, but it's still a great book. If we can just stand one more time, I know, and just read the Word of God, and we'll dive right into this. So we're in Mark 3, beginning in verse 1. And it says, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And they said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Udumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him, those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Father God, we ask that today, as we gathered as your people, that you would bless this moment. God, we know that we are dependent. We are not self-sufficient in any way. And so we come, not with arrogance, not with pride, but with humility, Lord. And we ask that you would speak, that you would speak clearly, that you would speak lovingly, that you would speak directly. Because that's why we're here, God. We're here to know you, and to know you better than when we ever came in before. And so whatever we have, we just bring it to the cross right now, Jesus. And we ask that you would bless this moment, that you would be glorified above all things. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and be seated. So if you haven't noticed yet, Mark is a quick book. 
He consistently uses terms like and or immediately because he is focused on moving forward to somewhere and he wants to get to it quickly. See, he is driving us forward to an end goal and that goal is Christ as the powerful servant who ultimately gives his life. See, he does this to emphasize the quality of his working power seen in his miracles. See, there's an obvious emphasis in the book of Mark on the power of Christ. In Mark, we see Christ's explosive beginnings in regards to his public ministry. He actually skips over genealogies. Okay, he avoids a lot of... um, references to law and such, and he just gets right into it. We also see the growing contention between himself and the Pharisees and the growing crowds only looking for healings. We have seen an increase in his effect already in two chapters, and we will only continue to see them increase throughout. So this brings us to our story in chapter 3. It is clear that Jesus is the center in all of Mark. But within the story, we find Jesus putting the weight of the situation upon others. He is directing our attention to a select group, namely the some in verse 2, which we will come to find later are the Pharisees. So in this, I want to start by talking about the Pharisees for a moment. So, I've grown up in the church, and uh, I know about like you, um, but as a kid, I was always uh, taught in a way that, that I understood the Pharisees to be vilified. In my eyes, they always seemed like the villains. And, and yes, scripturally, Jesus has a lot of contention with them. But I want to take a minute, and I want to just look at them for a moment. See, as long as I can remember, I'm an analyzer. Okay, I analyze everything. And I get very frustrated quickly if I struggle to really comprehend something. Okay? And often this means that I, I, I overwork things in my mind. I overthink things. And I do it because I'm so focused on getting it right for others. I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm people-pleasing, but there's a part of me that just wants to be right. I want to do well in what I'm doing. And that can be very debilitating. Truthfully, I can make things far more complicated than they need to be. See, I have a deep desire to get right what I'm trying to do. And so I believe the Pharisees are trying to be genuine in who they are. When you stop and think about them, Okay, I'm not saying that, that they are right because obviously we'll find that Jesus has a lot to say in regards to the way they act. But if we back up for a moment and we think about some of the early promises made by God to the nation of Israel regarding the blessings and the cursings, we will begin to see a clearer picture of what they were up against. So I did a quick Google search. There's um, a really cool website. It's called gotquestions.org. And they kind of put everything together really quickly. So these are some of the blessings and cursings that God had for Israel. Right? So in Deuteronomy 28, 
We see a lot of these. And the first blessing is this, prominence over other nations. He told them, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. That's what they were looking towards. They also had the successful cities and farmings. He said, you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country if you obey. Okay, we have blessings of children and food and livestock, protection against enemies, right? That they would be set apart as God's holy people. These are what they wanted because this is what he promised them. But the problem is, is that we know Israel failed in many ways, right? Whether it be in seeking to be like other nations or allowing compromise to take root or even their just absolute flagrant sinfulness, which ultimately had to move God to discipline them. Part of that discipline is being under the rule of another nation and not enjoying the promises as he made. So here we have in this very scenario the nation of Israel. They're under the rule of another nation. They're not in the blessing as he had promised because of sin. And so what we have now is the Pharisees are doubling down trying to gain back the favor of God. Stop and think about that. It's your role, it's your call as a Pharisee to lead the people. And you know he has told you, be obedient. If you're obedient, you'll be blessed. And they're not being blessed right now. And so in their mind, they're thinking, we gotta strive harder. We gotta get it right this time. See, everyone is anxiously awaiting the Messiah. And they're doing what they can to be a people ready to receive him. And so I wanna talk about some of these commands for a moment, okay? So in Judaism, we have the Torah, okay? The Torah is the first five books, or what we call the Pentateuch, right? Plus the writings like Psalms and the Prophets and Proverbs. And as Christians, we refer to that as the Old Testament. But a Jew, a practicing Jew, won't call it the Old Testament because they don't believe in the New Testament. They're still not there yet. So, this is the inspired word of God given to Moses, okay? And then following authors, which contains many of the commands of order, of worship, and social responsibilities, and so forth. And in fact, these commands are well over 600 that are prescribed. But alongside of the Torah is what is called the Talmud. And the Talmud is to believe is believed to also have been given to Moses orally and then following authors, and it was passed down from generation to generation. This is what is called the oral Torah. And at some point, or not some point, but is divided into the Gemara and the Mishnah, and eventually, sometime around in the second century, it was actually penned. But today, there's still part of the oral tradition that is not penned, and it's called the Midrash. So according to practicing Jews, both the Torah and the Talmud contain authority in inspiration and practice. So there's two Talmuds. There's the Jerusalem Talmud and there's the Babylonian Talmud. And in some ways, these, I think the best way to describe the Talmuds is really kind of like our commentaries, if you want to think of them that way. So if you look up here, I have some books on a table. So the red ones right here, are a part of the Babylonian Talmud. Part of. 
And then this, this book down here, right, this black one, this is called the Mishnah, okay, right here. And what these are is you have the, the, the Mishnah, the black book right here, is half of the Talmud, okay? And the Mishnah, remember, it was all oral, and the point was this, is that you have the original Torah, the original laws of God, the writings given to Moses. And just like today, we have people who, who sit and they review and they evaluate Scripture. They say, what does this mean? What does God mean by this passage? What does he mean by this verse? Well, back then they had the same thing. So you had, you had teachers, you had scribes who would look at the Torah and they would say, what does God mean by this? So the most common thing that we're dealing with right now, because we're in the midst of it, is, is Jesus is dealing with the Sabbath laws, right? We just saw that in chapter 2. So, so a common thing was this, is that the scribes would say, what does God mean by don't break the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath? And so they would, they would write down their ideas of what, God, what, what they thought God meant by don't break the Sabbath. So the, when, I, when I say that it's a lot like our commentaries, it's similar to that. But if you read, the, if you read the, the black book down here, it's super confusing because it's designed to still cause you to go to a scribe to get the answer. If you ever get the chance, go to the library, check one out. They're a fun read. They really are. Um, some crazy laws. But remember, the whole point was this, that, that they were trying to decipher exactly what God was saying. Because they know that if they broke the law, they would be in the disfavor of God. So they're trying to be genuine to what God has called them to be. The problem is, though, is that their intent was sincerity and conformance to the laws of God, but they became so invested in the law that they forgot the heart behind the laws. They became so focused on the, the minutiae of everything. They were so focused on the trees rather than the forest itself. And that is why I want to title this sermon today, When Passion Meets, or I'm sorry, When Passion Exceeds the Heart. When Passion Exceeds the Heart. See, the interesting thing is this, is that Torah, the actual word Torah means to teach. And the intention was never to be just simply an academic study. It was supposed to be an entirely enveloping practice in all aspects of life. And so I want to look at chapter 3, and I'm going to break it up into three acts. And so our first act, act 1, is verses 1 through 6. And the story opens once again with a quickness. If you've been reading through, you'll know that in some ways it's breathtaking. It's fast. Mark has been moving from story to story rapidly. One of the first things we are made aware of is the habit of Jesus to be in the synagogue. And within the story, we have Jesus, we have the Pharisees, and we have a man with a withered hand. And presumably there's other people around, but these are the three main characters that are addressed. And so let's just take a minute and go through the characters. The first group we have are the Pharisees, and 
like I said, we've, we've already talked about them a little bit. So they are passionate about God's law and the restoration of the blessing of Israel. They are so intent on getting it right, they, they will go to great lengths to make sure that nothing is missed. It is so important to remember that the Pharisees tend to elicit the most stern emotions from Jesus. And in this story, we are in the line of other stories that are already showing the contention growing between the Pharisees and Jesus. And then we have the man. We don't really know much about him. We can gather that he must be a worshiper since he's in the synagogue, but he is also ailed with a withered hand. In Luke, we are told it is his right hand, which would signify um, his, it would signify strength and authority and blessing or favor. So we don't know how his hand came to be withered or how long he's had it withered. And I think in some ways we can surmise that he must have come to the conclusion that this must be just normal life. This is his lot. Maybe he has come to believe that he is not favored by God. And maybe there's some questioning as to why this is happening or why he hasn't been healed. But also think about this. He has the stress of, of, of not being able to provide for himself, for himself successfully. It's hard to work with a withered hand. And the third we have is Jesus. Now we understand that Jesus has an agenda. Okay, in Mark 10.45, we have a very clarifying and very profound purpose of Jesus, and that is that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's where this is going. And we will continue to see this purpose become more intentional as he nears the cross. Above all, he is focused on the redemption of souls. And along that journey, he is preaching, he is healing, and he is casting out demons. In fact, in Mark, we see a clear tension between the works of God's kingdom and the works of Satan. Where the gospel, I love this, where the gospel of Mark lacks in parables and makes up for over half of Jesus' miracles. It quickly becomes evident among the people that he is different from all the other teachers. And we saw earlier in the book of Mark, they even go as far as saying that he is teaching with authority. They're seeing that. And so naturally, the Pharisees take interest in him, right? Because they recognize that he is growing in effect among the people. And don't forget that they've been waiting for the Messiah. They have great expectations of who he will be like and how he will come. And so immediately we find this situation is laid out in the story. See, Jesus enters the synagogue. There's a man with a withered hand. And there are some that are watching Jesus. Nate pointed this out not too long ago, but the Greek word for watch is peritoreo. And that's not just a casual observing. They're not like kind of pulling this 80s like high school photo, like there's kind of like leaning, you know, like, you know. It's not like that. 
It is, in fact, a very intense, scrutinizing, and even malicious watching. If you stop and think about this, in all their time observing Jesus, they never come to saving faith in him. They're never convinced. And because the word watch is in the imperfect tense, it shows that this is their continual practice. This is their habit. So every time Jesus is on the scene, this is what they're doing. This is their default. They want to catch him. And so Mark is super clear in the intent of the Pharisees is not whether Jesus could heal. Notice that. It's not whether he could heal, but rather would he heal. And not just would he heal, would he heal on the Sabbath. They aren't doubting that he is capable of healing, but rather is he willing? They know he has the power. There's no denying it. They've seen it. So look at this. If you go to verse 4, Jesus poses a question, and he really starts to get the heart of it. So remember, the Pharisees are watching to see if he will heal, notice that word heal, on the Sabbath. And this is what Jesus questions. He says in verse 4, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He actually doesn't mention healing. See, what Jesus does is he turns it into a question of morality, not legality. He turns it into a question of morality and not legality. To do good or to do harm. To save life or to kill. He moves it from the letter of the law to the intended heart of God behind the Sabbath. It was never the purpose of the Sabbath to serve as a binding taskmaster. And so we see the reason behind the anger of Jesus. Look in verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Notice those two expressions of emotions Jesus has. He was angered and he was grieved. That's a strong reaction by Jesus. This orge, or anger, is his wrath. See, we cannot think of it in the concept of our anger. See, his anger is not explosive. It is not temperamental. But it is slow and smoldering. I know it sounds funny to describe it that way, because even when I use the word smoldering, referring to God's anger, it still seems harsh, right? Like, I wouldn't want somebody to describe my anger as being smoldering. But the tr- I know, it's weird. The truth is, God's anger doesn't just flare up in an emotional moment. But it is actually patient and forbearing and yet just. It is patient and forbearing, and yet just. Notice what his anger is directed at. Their hardness of heart. This statement 
looked around at them in the story is what's called the aorist tense. And it means that it is a quick, short glance. So he poses the question and he briefly looks around. But his grieving is in the present tense, signifying the continuance of it. So his look is quick, but his grief is continual. And the reason why is because this, their hard hearts were a result of continuously rejecting the witness of Jesus. See, Mark and John do this literary thing. Uh, You see it a lot more in, in John, but Mark has it too, where they write almost in a sense of a court of law. They use what's called testimonies or witnesses. And so in Mark, our first witness to Jesus, our first testimony, is when Jesus is baptized and he comes out of the water and you have God the Father and the Holy Spirit come down and they testify of who Christ is. And then we have another testimony or witness and that is the demoniac where he approaches him and the demons cry out, what do you want with a son of God? And later on, we have the testimony of the disciples about who Christ is. But in this moment right now, the issue is this, is that the Pharisees, the scribes, they've been seeking the works of Christ and they aren't willing to testify of him because of their hardness of heart. They have consistently rejected the witness of Jesus. And so in this instance, we can see the righteous anger of God directed at sin, namely the lack of care and concern of people over the law. But even in his just anger, Jesus mourns. Don't miss that point, church. Even in his anger, he mourns. He is saddened at the condition of the Pharisees. See, I also believe in some ways he is angered at the destruction of the fall. And he is sorrowed to see the way his creation is bound. I mean, could you imagine being the creator of all things in front of your creation and you're seeing the damage done by the fall? Could you not see how he could be angered by that? And how he could be sorrowed at that? See, Jesus is angered because even their own law had an expectation. And I'm totally going to say this wrong. I don't speak Hebrew much. I know there's a lot of like, <gasps> it's called Pekach Nefesh. And it comes from Le- Leviticus 18.5. So in their law, when it dealt with the Sabbath regulations and working on the Sabbath, at some point a scribe was writing discussing what 18.5 meant. And in that verse, it talks about that the law will bring life. That he who obeys the law will have life. And so the scribe determined, he says, the law should be life-giving, not life-taking. And so because of that, they put an uh, uh, an exclusion in their Sabbath laws. And it said that if it was life or death, then you could heal you could you could work technically work to bring life 
to someone. So if somebody was injured or hurting, whatever, then you could technically break the Sabbath law to help them. But the caveat was this, is that you couldn't bring full restoration. You can only do just enough to bring some comfort. So if you had a sore throat, you could technically drink tea because it's not really healing, but it's soothing. Okay? This is how they got around it. This is how they think. This is how they live. This is literally what they are under, the weight of the law they're under. And so Jesus is frustrated and he is angered because he says this in Luke 14, 5. He says, Jesus goes as far to drive the point home that even in their law, if an animal fell into a well, they could help bring comfort to it. And so in Jesus' mind, he cannot fathom that the Pharisees would put the needs of an animal over the needs of a person created in the image of God. That's his frustration right now in the moment, in the Sabbath, in the synagogue. They are more concerned about his his legal followings. Is he following the law rather than the actual comfort of a human being created in the image of God? And he says, but you know what? If this was an animal, you wouldn't have an issue. None at all. Did Jesus break the law? No. Because we know that scripture states that he was sinless. And in John 5, 17, Jesus, Jesus even states that God the Father has been working till now, and so me too. And we know that that story, that, it, that just sets the Pharisees over the top. Right? So he's not only breaking the Sabbath law, according to them, but now he's also saying, I'm God. And that just sets them over the edge. And so not only have their hearts become hard, but they have also stopped being willing to converse with Jesus. Notice this. He poses the question, and the follow-up is this, but they were silent. They know what he is saying is true, and they know that they have no argument against him. In their anger, and in their disappointment, and in their frustration, they have stopped speaking with him. Church, don't ever come to the place where you stop conversing with God. Don't. Just don't do it. So next, Jesus draws our attention to two purposes. The purpose of the Pharisees, of whom are waiting to destroy. They're literally waiting to destroy Jesus. And Jesus himself is the giver of life. I think that's the other part of his question to them. Is it lawful to do good or to bad? I think really what he's doing is he's pointing out their heart condition right now. He's saying, you are intent on death, and I am here to bring life. And I think they know that. I want to turn now to the man with the withered hand. And as we had said earlier, we don't know much about him, but it is significant that we find him in the synagogue. See, he seems to be a worshiper, and that means he is striving to follow the law as expected. In my mind, I imagine the tension he must be feeling between the Pharisees and Jesus. Could you imagine that? Like, kind of like that unspoken, like, whoa, something's going on here, right? No doubt the reports have followed Jesus of his healing and his power. And I'm sure this man must have wondered in his mind if Jesus could heal him also. I picture the excitement and the joy that might have flooded his heart when Jesus called him forward. 
But I also wonder if he felt concerned about breaking the law. As a follower of Judaism, I wonder if he felt that tension. Surely he wouldn't want to invoke more disfavor from God. But he obeys. He is pulled into the center of everything for all to see. Jesus intentionally seeks him out in this moment. He meets him for the purpose of attending to his need. And after some conversation, Jesus, he follows the second command given to him to stretch out his hand. Now, if he is anything like me, I'm sure there must have been some hesitancy. And maybe even some initial skepticism. I mean, if I'm being honest here, I'm sure there would have been some doubt in my heart. I'm sure at some point, this man must have thought, Jesus, don't you think I've already tried that? Don't you think I've already seen the doctors? Don't you think I've already made the prayers and offered the sacrifices? And for what, Jesus? I mean, don't you think that's how some of us think sometimes? Let's be honest. But he stretches out his hand. And as his hand was restored. I love this because in the Septuagint, right, it is the word for restoration of Israel. It means to be set in order, to be brought back to an earlier condition. It is an absolute full healing. In that moment, all of life that that man has been wondering about and, and, and processing and saying, I don't understand this, why me? In that moment, he stretches out his hand and it's like nothing ever happened. I think that's profound. And this greatly upsets the Pharisees. In fact, at that moment, they immediately leave to go follow through with their intended purpose all along. It says that they, they go out to speak with the Herodians about how to destroy Jesus. It doesn't mean that they want to annihilate Jesus so that he ceases to exist. It is actually referring to his well-being, to his purpose. So they wanted to make Jesus useless in his designed purpose. They wanted to tear him down in the eyes of the people. And you know what? I think that's how Satan treats us. See, he can't wipe us out in existence. He doesn't have that power of authority. But he can derail us. He can take us from our intended purpose given by God. He will tell you lies, and he will put you in circumstances. He will drive you with temptations. But church, stand firm in the strength of God. Stand firm. So the question is, who are the Herodians? We don't really know much about them. There's been many suggestions. But what we do know is this, is that in some way they supported the rule of Herod. So they weren't quite really religious and they weren't quite really political. Somewhere in the middle. They hated Jesus equally, but for different reasons. 
And so the Pharisees take the opportunity to combine their hatred with the Herodians, hoping they could find success in destroying Jesus. See, church, sin will do that. It will blind you and lead you to do things and make connections that you never thought you would. The Pharisees had a love-hate with Rome. But you know what? They hated Jesus even more. Looking at Psalm 107 in verses 19 through 22, it says this, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. See, that should have been the response of the Pharisees. But it wasn't. And that should be our response today. As a side note, why do we sing? Why do we sing? There's many reasons, but at the top of it is recognition. We are filled with praise as a response to the glory and the triumph of God. Colossians 3.16 states this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It first starts with Christ dwelling in your hearts, with his word, with his truth, with his magnificence. See, church, we sing because of all people we have the most to sing about. There is no greater celebration than that which is what Christ has done, is doing, and will do. This is beyond personality, this is beyond preferences, and this is beyond comfort. This is for the glory of the most glorious Christ Jesus. That's why we sing, church. Act two, the redirection. So as we hop into verses seven through 12, we have Jesus who is retreating to avoid further situation with the Pharisees before his time. Notice that it's before his time. And see, at this point, we see the crowds enlarging and they're pressing increasingly against Jesus for healing. And for many people, Jesus is only a healer. Stop and think about it. For Jesus, for some people, Jesus is only a healer. But the truth is, is that, that the crowds became sensational. And it is obvious that Jesus desired to heal, but it wasn't his main goal. He carried a message that he intended to preach. And much of this crowd didn't seem interested in hearing his message. Act 3, greater focus. And so, so we have this, this increase of people following him, and the, and the extent is growing. They're coming from all over now. And as the situation begins to shift, Jesus recognizes that he is losing his window to speak due to the increased crowds looking for healing. And so he gathers disciples together and begins to focus more on teaching them for the purpose of them preaching and casting out demons. This is the drastic shift from ministry among the large crowds to a more intentional and intimate direction with his disciples. And so, what does all of this mean? What is the story 
mean to us today? And there's three things I want to leave you with. And the first is this. It is always the right time to do good. Let me say that again. It is always the right time to do good. We don't ever have to question that. John 13, 35 says this, By all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it doesn't say how much you know, how many books you can recite, what's on your shelves, how many times you go to church. No, it's they'll know you're my disciples by your love. And, and the, the, the thing about that is, that is, is we get it from him. We could call it the trickle-down effect. So when we've been affected by the love of Christ, we then share that love with others. We don't ever have to question, is now a good time to share love? No, it's always a good time. It's always a good time. Point number two. Your heart matters. Practice it well. Your heart matters. Practice it well. I love the definition of practice. It literally says the actual application or use of an idea, belief, or method as opposed to theories relating to it. See, the problem is, is that the Pharisees and the scribes had lots of theories. They had lots of discussions. But when it mattered the most, they couldn't walk it out. They totally missed it. Your heart matters. Practice it well. Practice being forgiving. Practice being loving and kind and gracious. I know right now there's a really big movement of people focusing on working out and doing races and all these things. And I think it's great. It's an important part of who we are as people. But we really don't hear a lot about working out the heart. We don't. We pray to be put in good circumstances where we can avoid loving difficult people sometimes. Or we pray that so-and-so would be changed so that I don't have to respond. But the truth of the matter is this. We need to be in those gyms of life to grow these things in our heart. And point number three is this. Hear his voice and seek his hand. Hear his voice and seek his hand. See, we aren't meant to only pursue a cognitive understanding of Jesus. We aren't to simply lead a faith based on only receiving miracles from him. We need both. We need to read and study to learn, but we also need to recognize that we are dependent and vulnerable before him. We need to be passionately grounded. Let me say that again. We need to be passionately grounded. To cling to the truth and yet allow our emotions to animate our faith in some ways. See, a lack of emotion and only knowledge makes us cold, while no knowledge and only emotion makes us selfish and shallow. We have to have both, church. Because one, that's how God created us, right? He created us to be emotional people. And so the reality is this, is that 
that when we gather as the body of Christ, we need to live in the way that God created us. Some of us are in a valley, and it's weighty, and it's dark, and it's hard, and it's cold, and it's long. And in those times, it's okay to cry. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to, to, to feel that weight and to be there. It's okay. You don't lose your hope. You cling to the promises, but it's okay. And for some of you, you're on the peak. Life is going really well. You're happy, you're joyous. You couldn't think of a better day. You still hold to the promises because we don't know tomorrow. You still hold to the promises. But you also encourage. You come alongside. You weep with those who are weeping. You lift up the weak because one day you're going to need somebody to be there for you. What I'm getting at is this, is that it can be easy to slide into the rut of the Pharisees, to disconnect yourself from everything. That's me. I'll tell you what, man, I had some dark times in college where I was so focused on learning and writing and reciting, and I forgot the heart by everything. And there's other times where, even as a kid, like I grew up in a very Pentecostal church, and I remember everything was excitement, excitement, excitement. You weren't allowed to be honest and real in so many ways. I couldn't talk about the struggles, and I took it, couldn't talk about my fears because it was expected that the joy of the Lord is always to be your strength. And so you walk around with this kind of weird headspace. And so what I'm going to do today is this. I don't know, maybe it's a little bit of my Pentecostal coming in. I don't know. Right now, some of you guys are stuck in your knowledge. Some of you guys have been sitting here and saying, what good nuggets is he going to give us today? You're going to be focused on writing down those notes. You're going to take pride in them. And some of you guys are here today, and you're sitting here, and, and, and you just want to break down. Like you are literally feeling emotionally drained and tired because you feel like you've been fighting. Maybe you feel like you've been this man with a withered hand, and, and you're literally saying, I've tried everything, and I, I, I have no answers. I don't, I don't know what to do. And so you are just feeling sorrowful or hopeless. And I want you guys to literally look around this room. We're the body of Christ, and we're, we're, we're all over. And I don't want to rush past this. I don't want to move past what God could potentially doing in your lives right now, individually, but as the corporate body of Christ. And so what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to have this song played. It's a video lyric. It's a simple, simple prayer of a song. It's really not complex. And some of you are going to be like, oh, wow, this is really not that complex. And some of you guys are like, wow, this is so good. The goal isn't for you to enjoy the song. The goal is for you 
to be the body of Christ. And so what I'm asking is this. I'm not concerned right now about your comfort. And I get we have kids, and this is new, and this is strange. What I'm asking is this. For the next few minutes, we're going to be the body. And we're going to pray. Some of you guys know each other's stories. You know the loss, you know the hurt, you know the fear. Those that are feeling really good right now, come alongside those that are hurting. If you need to come up front, and I know we say this, but I really actually truly mean it. We have elders who are waiting to pray for you. And so if you need to come up to the altar, who cares who sees you? Jesus called a man with a withered hand into the middle of the synagogue, and he did it. And so I'm going to let this song play. It's really mostly just about backspace, just like some music in the background. The goal is prayer. The goal is supporting each other. And so that means that you go to somebody else's row, and you sit with them, and you talk, and you cry, and you pray. Or if that means you come forward in this altar, and you have an elder pray for you. Maybe that just means you gather with your family. Or maybe it just means you sit in silence. Maybe it means you stand up and sing as, as at the end of that song, we're going to have some closing songs just for you to have that space to just be with God. Like, this is my closing. So when this song plays, that's it. I'm not coming back up. I'm not dismissing you. It's 11.15. I don't want to rush this, but I want to create space where you can be ministered to. Because that's what it's about. So we're going to play this song, and we're just going to follow the Spirit. Can we do that, church? Thank you.